Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, New York takes steps to try and combat a rise in online hate speech. To demand that they take concrete action to reduce the sickening hate that is being spread on their sites. WBGO's John Kalish has the story about a new film that focuses on a man who has been described as a Ukrainian Robin Hood. The movie Dovebush is about a Ukrainian national hero named Oleksa Dovebush who battled the Polish nobility in the 1700s. And I'll chat with Ian T. Shern, who is out with a new documentary about the late New Jersey music producer Tony Camillo and the famous tune recorded at his Venture Studios. And this is how songs like Midnight Train to Georgia captured the magic because he encouraged and allowed these collaborations to happen during live sessions. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. New York Governor Kathy Hoke was taking a series of steps to try and combat a rise in online hate speech. We get the story from WBGO's Scott Pringle. The governor is sending a letter to social media companies calling for increased monitoring of content that could incite violence. Express not just my indignation, but the demand that they take concrete action to reduce the sickening hate that is being spread on their sites. The governor is directing her team to develop a media literacy curriculum for K-12 students to identify conspiracy theories and misinformation online. Jackie Bray heads the state's Department of Homeland Security. It's about helping them recognize how to be smart about sources of information, about what's a primary source versus secondary source. We're going to create age-specific, age-appropriate content that is content-specific to teachers versus administrators versus parents versus students. This follows a huge rise in online hate speech against Jewish and Muslim communities. Scott Pringle, WBGO News. A new action film focuses on a man who has been described as a Ukrainian Robin Hood. One of the characters in the film is the founder of Hasidic Judaism, who was known as the Balshemto. They both lived in what is now western Ukraine during the 18th century. WBGO's John Kalish caught up with the American actor who portrayed the Balshemto. The movie Dovebush is about a Ukrainian national hero named Oleksa Dovebush who battled the Polish nobility in the 1700s. The costume drama was shot in the summer of 2021 and is replete with battle scenes filmed before the current battle with Russia began. A 38-year-old American actor named Loser Twersky plays Rabbi Israel Ben Eliezer, who founded the Hasidic movement and was known as the Baal Shem Tov, which means master of the good name. For his audition, Twersky was asked by the director to sing a niggin, a wordless Jewish melody common in the Hasidic world. I later found out that that was his audition process. He wanted someone who really knows this stuff. Balshemtov or Hasidicism in general. He wanted someone who could really embody this character. It was very, very important for him, this character. So he decided that the way to find the right person was to ask every actor who wants to audition to sing a nigun. And if they ask, what is a nigun, he would automatically throw them out. The Balshemtov is often referred to as the best. When you see Tversky portray the best on the silver screen, you can't help but notice that his eyes are dazzlingly blue, so much so that one wonders if special effects were used. The film's producers assured me they were not. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
When Lou Zertorsky went to Ukraine to shoot the film, it was his third trip to the country. His first was made in 1999 when he was 14 years old. My entire family is buried over there. A lot of these grave sites are considered holy sites for us to go pray and to go visit. So when I was a teenager, I went there to visit all my great-parents, great-grandparents' grave sites all over Ukraine and Poland. I went to the grave site of my great-great-great-grandparents who are both buried in Kiev. Ten years later, he went for an annual Hasidic pilgrimage that's been referred to as the Jewish Burning Man. Oles Sanin, the director of Dovbush, originally planned to release the film in May 2022, but the Russian invasion in February 2022 changed that. Daniel Bielak is a Canadian lawyer of Ukrainian descent who moved to Ukraine in 1991 and has served in a number of government agencies. He's the film's co-producer. The post-production was blown up with the first volley of artillery on February 24th. Everybody, you know, was just scattered. And you could make a movie about how we did the post-production. We couldn't even put an orchestra together. We finished the post-production in the spring of this year, 2023, and Sanyan said, look, I didn't want to release this film until after victory. But he said, we've achieved a moral victory already, and so I'm going to release it on Independence Day. The very first people that saw the entire movie were on the front line. The 68th Jaeger Brigade, named after Alexa Dobush. They've taken heavy losses. Bilak is currently serving in the Territorial Defense Force. When the film opened last summer, he drove 1,200 miles around Ukraine with actor Luzer Torsky to promote the film. I traveled five days with Luzer in the car. I got the best education on the Hasidim that any goy could possibly dream of. Tversky went to Ukraine for the film's premiere, intending to stay for a week, but he ended up spending more than a month in the country. He was on hand when the film was shown at a military hospital in Kiev and for other screenings closer to the front. In Kharkiv, if there is incoming, you have 30 seconds. And sometimes in Kharkiv, air raid siren goes off after the hit. The theater that we were showing at has been bombed. They're still getting bombarded. One of the screenings took place in Zaporizhia, a dozen miles from the Russian front. The audience included a soldier with fresh wounds who apparently came directly from the front. And yet Zaporizhia, says Tversky, struck him as strangely normal. We're sitting in this big plaza in the middle of the city, like an open plaza, and like people with their dogs and people walking around. And I'm having avocado toast. And I'm like, am I in Santa Monica here? What is this? I caught up with Tversky at a packed screening of Dove Bush in Brooklyn last month, attended by Ukrainian expats. One woman in the audience was seeing it for the third time. My name is Christine Khutchak. When I was in Ukraine, you know, everybody spoke about this film and we were very excited when it came out. So I went there with my friend and then I took my mom and my brother and watched it the second time. And then when I came from Ukraine, I told like all my friends that what I saw was something that gave me goosebumps for the rest of the day. 
And here I am again, the third time. Most of what we know about Dovbush and the Balshemtov comes from Ukrainian and Jewish legends in the form of short stories, poems, and ballads. One of the legends that's been handed down tells of the execution of Alexa Dovbush by Polish authorities. But Larissa Fialkova, a literature professor at the University of Haifa in Israel, says another legend holds that Dovbush never died. He entered a cave and is sleeping in the cave, waiting for his time to wake up. And there is also a legend that he put his axe into the rock and nobody but Dolbush can take it out. So one day when he will be needed, he will get up, walk out of the cave, take his axe and continue his struggle for Ukraine. Dovebush is the third highest grossing film in Ukrainian history and is said to be poised to surpass the second highest grossing motion picture, a comedy titled Me, You, He, She, that starred a comedian named Volodymyr Zelensky. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. It's one of the most iconic songs ever. A Midnight Train to Georgia, Gladys Knight in the Pits. And now there's a new documentary that's out that tells the whole story about the collaboration and what goes in to a famous song. And it's the work of Ian T. Sharon, the creator, writer, and executive producer of this documentary. He also happens to be the son-in-law of the man who made it all work. We'll get into that in a moment. But also joining us is someone who played the piano and the keyboards on Midnight Train to Georgia. And that is jazz fusion pioneer Barry Miles, born right in Newark. First of all, Barry, great to see you. It's great to be here, Doug. And Ian, thanks so much. This was your baby, and you've put together quite an interesting podcast that I really enjoy. Well, thank you, Doug. So let's go to the late Tony Camillo who happens to be your father-in-law, Ian. He's no longer with us, but his story is a magical one, especially when it comes to Midnight Train to Georgia. Tell our audience the connection with Tony and bringing his New Jersey roots as far as his studio and eventually having Gladys Knight and the Pips come to that studio to record. Sure. Well, briefly, I'm sitting in an office that is adjacent to the studio where that uh iconic song was 
was arranged, recorded, mixed, and produced. Uh, and so I married Tony's daughter and, uh, of course, got to know and naturally then love Tony and admire Tony uh, as uh, one of the most positive human beings I've ever met. Uh, so then I, I, I realized last year that 50-year anniversary of this of this great record was coming up, and I was wondering if anybody was doing anything. It didn't appear they were, so I, I decided to do it. And, you know, it started out, the motivation was, you know, was to pay tribute to Tony Camilla. But I, I, I got to tell you, along the way, along the way, I came to uh, admire all the players who were involved in this collaboration. And that's what it was, a collaboration. And the collaboration includes some really big name artists that we will talk about in a moment as well. But Barry, as someone who played on this record, I know that you have said this is a song that will continue to last forever because it, it is magical. Tell us, while you were playing on Midnight Train to Georgia, did you know that it did have the qualities of being a song that would just live with us forever? Not necessarily, uh, because when I, when I played on it, what I was hearing... Um, was the rhythm section. And I think I heard like a demo of the melody uh, that Gladys had put on on a previous uh, uh, version of it. So I knew about the song. I thought it was a great song. I think obviously Tony's arrangement was beautiful. And I, I think I was just hearing the, uh, you know, just the, the, like the guitar, <clears throat> Tony's uh, electric piano and organ, bass and drums. Uh, so I knew it was really good, but who knew at that particular time where that was going to go? Because there's so many elements and so many things that would uh, determine, you know, where a song goes, how it goes, how it's promoted and so forth and so on. Once I finally heard the final version of it, I said, oh, that's a hit. You know? And it wasn't long after when we did hear that, that, that final version. I think they put that out like very, very shortly, you know, there, thereafter. Hard to believe it came from a country songwriter, Jim Weatherly, who had the genesis of this song with Midnight Plane to Houston. So, Ian, this didn't start off as an Al Green kind of sound that Gladys Knight eventually would want to have. It started out as a country song. Yeah, yeah, which we play on the podcast, and it's interesting to hear the difference yeah, it's, this started off briefly. I, I didn't get into this in the podcast because it's pretty well known, but this started when Jim Weatherly was a uh, former uh, All-American football quarterback from Ole Miss. And after that, he became, you know, he tried to make it as a song, a songwriter and singer. And he, he, he moved to L.A. He was good friends with an actor named Lee Majors. They played flag football together. So he called up Lee one day to uh, to check in and. Uh, Lee's new girlfriend, Farrah Fawcett, uh, uh, answered the phone and they chatted a little bit. Lee wasn't home. And she said that she was getting ready uh, to take a uh, midnight plane to Houston. And, and Jim hung up the phone and said, wow, wow, that's a wow. There's something there for a song. And he just and then he sat down and like in 20 to 30 minutes after that phone call, he banged out those 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 really, really potent lyrics and that's the genesis of the song 
So really, we could kind of thank the $6 million man for helping out with a multi-billion dollar record, probably, when, when, you, when you think about it. <laughs> well, well put. Yeah. <laughs> That's fabulous. And as Ian said, all kinds of listening that you can hear in this podcast. You can hear that song. You can hear the original uh, strings and everything put into the song as it was being made and some of the great uh, performers. Bassist from Motown was Bob Babbitt. Then you had uh, Andrew Smith was on drums, guitarist Jeff Miranov. And then later, you'll have trumpeter Randy Brecker and baritone saxophonist Michael Brecker. And then also Barry Miles. really a jersey tale though because it all starts in venture studios and that's where you're sitting at right now ian so not only is this uh you know it's 50th anniversary tribute to the whole collaboration and to gladys knight and the pips but it's also about how your father-in-law made that studio work and he was able to bring in all these other people who were so talented that some of the labels probably were quite jealous of what came out of that studio. Yes, uh, probably. Uh, this was a time of, 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 of great change in the uh, music industry and the uh, record industry. And, uh, you know, Tony was, he was offered uh, contracts with Motown and the legendary uh, songwriting pr production team of Holland Dozier Holland. And he turned them down, which, I mean, at that point, Motown was the epicenter of popular music in America. And uh, he said, you know, I don't know if he said it, but he certainly thought it that, no, I, I'm building a studio in my basement. I want to produce my own hit records. So he um, he stayed to his cause and you saw what happened. Yeah. So, Barry, you know, you've been a, a part of music for many, many years, and, and jazz fusion has been always one of your, your babies, but when you were playing on this record, the, the feel and the vibe, was was it a new feel for you? No, I first of all, I had known Tony since I was a little kid, like in the late 50s, and I remember seeing his studio being built, you know, the, the groundwork for it, the foundation and everything, and I had was involved with... Uh, Tony, Tony produced an album of mine in, in like 1968, 69, and then helped me with so many different things. Uh, so, and I also did in the early 70s, starting in the early 70s, a lot of studio work for Tony and other people in, in New York simultaneous to what I was doing as, a, as an artist myself. So, I, you know, the fusion idea, I like all kinds of music if it's done well. So it wasn't like a different kind of feel for me. Uh, you know, with Midnight Train to Georgia, it had an R&B pop element to it, but Tony wanted, at, at least at that particular time, to get a little bit of the country thing or the, you know, the Muscle Shoals, got, you know, or something something a little bit different. And I, I know that uh, it's in the documentary, it, it mentions how Gladys really wanted to go in that direction. So my thing in the very beginning of the song, there's a little line that's like a piano line and Tony wanted me to play something there and he didn't specifically he didn't write that out he just said if you could do something like a little country kind of thing and I fiddled around with it a little bit and and 
finally I came up with with that line and he said that's that's perfect for that and it was sort of almost like a Floyd Kramer country piano kind of kind of style and it's the first thing that you hear in the song so it had a little catch to it in the beginning so you know I was familiar with all different kinds of um, music and the country music and so uh, it didn't feel different or uncomfortable for me but the song had elements of a lot of or that his arrangement had a lot of elements that weren't your typical Motown type of thing your typical R&B type of thing they, and that's one of the things that made, made that whole thing unique. When Barry Miles was younger he performed with two very little known artists to our uh, to our radio station somebody named Miles Davis and John Coltrane how did that work out? Well, that was really cool. In fact, I'm going to have to send you, I'm looking on my wall, I can't show it to you right now, but there's a poster from a concert that I did in November 29th, 1958, which is Miles Davis and all, you know, in Newark at the Mosque Theater. And I'll send you a picture of that poster. And there's all these musicians that are on it, including myself, sort of playing drums and piano. And the, the local uh, sax player that played with me in, the, in one little thing was Wayne Shorter. So, because he's a Newark guy, you know, so uh, that's, that sort of came about uh, a lot of different things. My dad would take me to different places to sit in and meet musicians. Like there was a place called Sugar Hill in Newark, which was a jazz club. And I think this guy, promoter Teddy Powell, had something to do with that. You know, New Jersey, Newark background go, goes way back and uh, I got a chance through Woody Herman basically to play with a lot of great and musicians. What was the most interesting conversation you ever had with Tony Ian that you'd like to share with us? The most interesting conversation I had with Tony was the last conversation. I mean, was the previous conversation I had with Tony. I mean, there are countless stories, uh, but I, but I did, you know, thankfully I did sit down with him at one point in his later years and just asked him to just sort of, you know, recap his career, uh, which is, and you will hear excerpts from that interview uh, in the podcast. And thank God I did. I mean, I was really negligent as a journalist. I had this wonderful story living with me and I never, you know, I should have sat down with him for hours to, to go through his tale, but you know, I was doing other things and, but thank God I did that. And, um, his, um, it ended up, I, 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 I edited that, that interview down and, and played it as, uh, his, as his own eulogy at his memorial service. And it was a beautiful thing. And this was a guy who was just, you know, dedicated to music and life. Um, and uh, he, I think Barry will agree with me that he was one of the most uh, positive, generous people on the planet. Absolutely. Ian Sharn's resume includes a Pulitzer Prize for a, a story that he worked on, on Jim McGreevy uh, when he was uh, governor of New Jersey. And he's been a regular contributor to NJ Spotlight News. So there's so many connections to the Garden State when we're talking here about a song unto itself, Midnight Train to Georgia, the new documentary that has been created, written, and executive produced by Ian Shern. Ian, when people hear this podcast, they're also going to find out 
something that they probably already knew, but you hear from Gladys and people that are connected with her in the group, the music industry is a tough one. Wow. Yeah, well, Barry can speak to that better than I. But yes, uh, that, and in fact, this is what uh, I intend episode to be is, and I found out that with all these this incredible crew of people involved in this collaboration for one song, very talented, very dedicated uh, uh, crew of people that, you know, I found out that talent, talent is not the only requisite trait you need to succeed in this industry. And I found out that each of these people had this, shared this trait called resilience. Uh, they were grounded uh, people who had talent and knew how to take a punch and knew how to uh, to uh, navigate their way through a very, very treacherous industry. Barry, your thoughts on the music industry at that time and maybe what, how does it compare to today's world? Well, today's world is a, a lot different. It always was difficult. And I consider myself fortunate that I've been doing this since, you know, I got in the union, musicians union when I was nine. And the only job I ever had in my life has been music. So I don't take that for granted because it's it's a tough industry business wise. And it isn't only talent. There's uh, there's opportunities that you can take or not take or luck and so many, so many different things. It was probably even though it was difficult in the 70s. It was a simpler place in time, to quote uh, a line in, in Midnight Train to, to Georgia. Um, now, it's the hard part is that everything, music is free. In other words, you can go and listen to anything you want online. You don't really have to pay for it. If you want to, you can. How younger musicians coming up can, can parlay that into a career and not have to do it as a sideline to something. There are certain people who can do that who are extraordinarily talented and lucky, but in the middle there, there's a group of people who are just some amazing, amazing musicians and they don't get that. They get the opportunity. You can see all of their stuff online, but they can't make a living off doing that. In the documentary, at the very end, we hear a very young Gladys Knight winning a competition or at least competing in a competition and when she sings at such a young age you you can see that there's talent there but you know obviously she became a huge star and Barry at the time that you did Midnight Train to Georgia I know that you had this you knew that she was special right? Oh absolutely I mean she uh, you know was already fully blown, had other things that were out. I did a lot of other recordings with her, with Tony, Tony Camillo, and uh, she can sing any kind of style of music. She can sing jazz things that are, are, are great. And um, she's just, you know, unique talent. Yeah, she recently played at NJ Pax. She recently played at Parks Casino. I'm going to let you have the final say on this, Ian, because this is, this is really a story about your father-in-law and how this whole collaboration worked. What are some of the things that you would like to, to make sure that people know? Tony Camillo was a very talented musician, was a trumpet player, and then uh, but uh, went on to become a very talented arranger and finally a producer. And I think what it was is Tony um, uh, had an affinity for music that was instinctive 
uh, is something he never thought about as a career choice. It was just a calling from an early age. And he followed that calling. There's a whole evolution of going from being a musician to an arranger to a producer. And uh, you have to, your responsibilities become larger in the collaboration. Yes, he wrote arrangements, but he would take those arrangements into the studio, pass out his 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 lead sheets to the musicians and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking, but you guys are great, so I want you to bring your own thing to this. And this is how songs like Midnight Train to Georgia captured the magic because he encouraged and allowed these, corpor- uh, these collaborations to happen during live sessions, I think, uh, pretty amazing. And how can they find the podcast, Ian? Well, they can find the podcast. Um, it's it's with most of your podcast groups. It's with Apple. It's with Google. It's with Spotify, the usual cast of characters. Or you can uh, just go to my website, which is called gumptiongroup.com, and there's a, there's a link there. Barry Miles, thanks so much, not only for all the music that you've provided through the years, but thanks for being a part of Midnight Train to Georgia, and thanks for being on this show. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Doug. And it was great speaking, chatting with you and Ian. And, uh, you know, it was great to, to hang out for a little while here. Okay. Continued success, Ian. And there could be episodes coming, more episodes. The first one is titled Midnight Train from Jersey, because it is based right there in Hillsborough, New Jersey. Continued success, Ian. Thank you so much, Doug. Thanks for taking the time. You can see the entire interview with Ian T. Shearn and Barry Miles on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.